This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 6 Diverse Evidence on the Virality of Economic Narratives Further evidence on the impact of narrative contagion on the economy can be found in the story structures in the human brain, in the brain's processing of frightening stories, in the long history of the news media in reinforcing primordial human interactions, and in the emotional impact of effective book jackets, logos, and beauty contests. The Impulse to Convey Stories in 1958, brain surgeon Wilder Penfield implanted electrodes into the brains of human subjects while performing brain surgery, undertaken for medical reasons on wide-awake patients, under only local anesthesia because the brain itself has no pain receptors. He discovered that electrically stimulating certain narrowly focused parts of the brain caused it to hear a sequence of sounds in chronological order. Quote, when the electrode was applied in gray matter on the cut face of the temporal lobe at point 23, the patient observed, I heard some music. Fifteen minutes later, the electrode was applied to the same spot again without her knowledge. I hear music again, she said. It is like radio. Again and again, the electrode tip was applied to this point. Each time she heard an orchestra playing the same piece of music. It apparently began at the same point and went on from verse to chorus. Seeing the electrical stimulator box from where she lay under the surgical coverings, she thought it was a gramophone that someone was turning on from time to time, end quote. Stimulating a different part of the brain caused the story to be told, again in chronological sequence. Quote, a young woman said when her left temporal lobe was stimulated anteriorly at point 19, I had a dream. I had a book under my arm. I was talking to a man. The man was trying to reassure me not to worry about the book. At a point one centimeter distant, stimulation at point 20 caused her to say, Mother is talking to me. Fifteen minutes later, the same point was stimulated. The patient laughed aloud while the electrode was in place. After the withdrawal of the electrode, she was asked to explain. Well, she said, it is kind of a long story, but I will tell you. End quote. Penn Field's work has been highly influential in a number of disciplines. For our purposes, his results indicate the extent to which the human brain structure appears to embody some of the traits that we think of as exclusively human, the propensity to make music, and the propensity to tell stories as sequences of events, stories that trigger emotions. Modern neuroscience is trying to pin down the determinants of the human impulse to tell stories. For example, a team from Emily B. Falk's neuroscience lab at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania has used functional magnetic resonance imaging to study the brains of people making decisions whether to share health news stories. The team concluded that people tended to share content that enhances self-related thoughts, that is, information that engages neural activity in regions related to such processes, self-presentation or mental concept, especially in the medial prefrontal cortex, and that involves cognitions or forecasts about the mental state of others. 
In other words, these people are more willing to share their health information in the form of stories about themselves and others. Paul J. Zak, a neuroeconomist, has shown experimentally that narratives with a dramatic arc increase levels of the hormones oxytocin and cortisol in the listener's bloodstream as compared with more flat narratives. These hormones in turn have well-documented effects on behavior. Oxytocin, sometimes called the love hormone, plays a role in facilitating relationships. Cortisol, sometimes called the stress hormone, has been shown to play a role in regulating blood sugar, assisting memory information, and reducing inflammation. Neurological Responses to Stories Evoking Fear News media and popular discussions have long described financial crises as panics created by a spate of sudden economic failures following a period of excessive complacency about economic risks. It may seem like journalistic hype to use charged words such as panic, which conjures images of a stampeding mob trying to escape a sudden physical danger, and the word complacency, which suggests a sort of smug stupor. Yet, most, yet people mostly seem perfectly rational during such financial events, which take place over months and years of largely normal living, and they tend to present themselves as sorting through the facts. Even during a financial panic, people seem mostly normal and relaxed, joking and laughing. But are the terms panic and complacency really so far off the mark? Both words describe mental states that must be supported through neurological structures. We need to study those structures to determine whether there is any common neurology between financial panics and other panics, between financial complacency and other types of complacency. Consider an example that is current during the writing of this book, the pattern of increasing risk-taking by banks as the 10th anniversary of the 2007-2009 world financial crisis approached. In 2017, the FDIC issued a report expressing concern that U.S. banks, in a reach for yield, were taking excessive risks by extending the maturity of their investments. For nearly 10 years after the financial crisis, interest rates had been very low, though higher at longer maturities. Reaching for these higher yields was risky for banks because if interest rates suddenly increased, they might have to pay more to keep depositors, more the, more to keep depositors than they earned from the longer maturity investments, which could cause the banks serious trouble. Ultimately, the banks decided to take the risk, but how they form their expectations but how did they form their expectations of future interest rates? Yeah, sorry, guys. No expert has a proven record of forecasting interest rates years into the future. No one can tell a banker how long to wait out a period of low interest rates or guarantee that the low rates will go on forever. All that bankers have are fading memories of narratives of other historical periods when interest rates rose dramatically leaving droves of depositors to run to their banks and withdraw their money. Those stories seem less relevant when interest rates have been low for 10 years, but there is no way to quantify how much less relevant. It may be best to think of banks' behaviors at such times as driven by primitive neurological patterns, the same patterns of brain structure that have survived millions of years of Darwinian evolution. The fact that dogs and rodents today have some of these same fear management brain structures is evidence for their common Mesozoic origins. 
Fear is a normal emotion for all mammals and higher animals, and it is supported by brain structures. The extinction of fear is a process that must take place over time to release the fear after the danger has passed. Scientists first observed the action of these brain structures indirectly. In 1927, Ivan Pavlov, a Russian physiologist, reported his research on dogs. If dogs were repeatedly given a dose of acid on their tongue as a metronome clicked in the background, then later the sound of the metronome alone, without the acid, would induce the same involuntary reactions as if acid had been applied. In a subsequent phase of the experiment, Pavlov repeatedly turned on the metronome but withheld the acid, and the dog's aversive reaction was gradually extinguished. Later, the brain structures involved in such reactions were discovered. In rats, the neurons of the lateral amygdala, an almond-shaped area of the brain, played a fundamental role in both the fear acquisition stage and the fear extinction phase, increased their firing during fear acquisition, and reduced their firing during extinction of the fear. Not all of the neurons reduced their firing, keeping a residual fear intact. Neuroscientists have concluded, quote, Collectively, there is much evidence suggesting that a distinct neural circuitry involving interactions between the amygdala, VMPFC, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, and hippocampus underlies the ability to extinguish fear, and that this circuitry is preserved across evolution. Rats show much of the same circuitry, an involuntary triggering of fear that humans do. In humans, thickness of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is correlated with success in fear extinction. Some human neurological disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, represent failures of extinction, and studying these disorders can reveal the underlying structures of fear management. It seems safe to say that the evolutionary process of optimizing the neural circuitry for fear and its extinction has not yet been completed in humans because civilization is only a few millennia old. A mental state akin to PTSD may afflict a whole population at times. In his 1951 book, The Captive Mind, the Polish poet Czesław Milosz, describing his impressions of the whispered and unofficial narratives that existed late in the Stalinist regime, noted that the atmosphere of fear created by this regime was profoundly important. The fear was of disappearing at the hands of the secret police, of being forcibly transported with one's family to Siberia, and once there, starving or freezing to death. Quote, Fear is well known as a cement of societies. In a liberal capitalistic economy, fear of lack of money, fear of losing one's job, fear of slipping down one rung on the social ladder, all spurred the individual to greater effort. But what exists in the imperium is naked fear. In a capitalist city with a population of 100,000 people, some 10,000, let us say, may have been haunted by fear of unemployment. Such fear appeared to them as a personal situation, tragic in view of the indifference and callousness of their environment. But if all 100,000 people live in daily fear, they give off a collective aura that hangs over the city like a heavy cloud. End quote. It is reasonable to suggest that, as Milos does, that the fear of losing one's job is less intense than the fear of being deported to Siberia, 
and that fear at any level relies on the same brain circuitry. Then, in difficult situations with no logical answer or solution, for example, in the decision whether to make a risky investment, the human mind may delegate the decision to some brain circuitry that is similar to rats. In such cases, memories of bitter past experience, as well as memories of others' experience, transmitted in the form of narratives, may determine the actions taken, and at certain times, they may lead to unfortunate economic decisions. The decline in fear may reflect a gradual process of fear extinction that may be reversed if the narrative experiences a dramatic new development or mutation. Recent narratives about rogue states' possession of nuclear weapons seem possibly intense enough to renew the fear of nuclear annihilation, but apparently they have not done so. Just as it is difficult or impossible to, to predict which motion picture will be a box office hit, it is difficult to predict which narrative will eventually have economic impact. Narratives have been going viral for millennia. People have been spinning narratives since time immemorial. Contagion was increased by communications at bazaars, religious festivals, and fairs, as well as casual encounters. In ancient Rome, for example, people who wanted the news would attend the regular salutatio at their patron's house, or they went to the forum, where they listened to orators or a preco who wore a special toga to stand out. The preco announced news and stories to the crowd, read advertisements, and handled auctions. Rumor is the ancient Latin word for contagious narrative. The polymath David Hume wrote in 1742, quote, When any causes beget a particular inclination or passion, at a certain time and among a certain people, though many individuals may escape the contagion and be ruled by passions peculiar to themselves, yet the multitude will certainly be seized by the common affection and be governed by it in all their actions. End quote. Hume wrote before the germ theory of disease was established, before bacteria and viruses were identified, but many of his contemporaries understood that both disease and ideas were spread by interpersonal contact. In, sorry, in 1765, during the economic depression in the American colonies of the United Kingdom following the French and Indian War, which coincided with the Seven Years' War, a letter to the printer in the New London Gazette in Connecticut by Alexander Windmill, apparently a pseudonym, identified an epidemic of a narrative that involved the sentence, there is no money. Quote, I take it for granted. There is not one of your readers but has heard that most melancholy sentence repeated times without number, there is no money, nor scarce one who has not himself frequently joined in this epidemic complaint. Conversation among people of every rank, I have remarked for some months, past to run in one invariable channel, and the hackneyed topic, topics of discourse to be constantly introduced in the same precise order, with admirable uniformity. Benevolent inquiries respecting health and ingenious observations on the weather, according to the laudable custom of our ancestors, and from time immemorial led the van. As soon as these curious and important articles are discussed, the muscles of the face being previously worked up into a mix of distress and resentment, tempered with a suitable proportion of political sagacity, succeeds the wonderful discovery aforesaid, there is no money, which is instantly repeated by each party 
with every token of astonishment. One would think, by the surprise visible in their countenance and the vehemence of their expressions, that neither of them had heard of the calamity till that minute, though perhaps it is not two hours since the same person conversed upon the same subject and made the same remark. End quote. Windmill goes on to calculate, with some exaggeration perhaps, that the sentence, there is no money, was then currently repe being repeated 50 million times a day by English-speaking inhabitants of the American colonies. He thought it reasonable to assume, based on his observations, that a million people were saying it every 20 minutes during most of the daylight hours, and some were even sleep-talking it. Charles McKay drew attention to the contagious spread of extraordinary popular delusions in his 1841 book, Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions. Gustave Le Bon said in his book, Psychologie des Fouls, The Crowd, in 1895, that ideas, sentiments, emotions, and beliefs possess in, in crowds a contagious power as intense as that of microbes. Related terms are collective consciousness, collective memory, and memes. Of book jackets and company logos. Those who try to create viral narratives experiment, observe their successes and failures, and try to identify patterns that might suggest further avenues for creation. But the difference between a viral narrative and a non-viral narrative may depend on some aspect of the narrative that is not related to our enthusiasm for the narrative. It may depend, for example, on something hard to observe directly, such as the ability to connect with other topics of conversation or reminders in other narratives. The contagion rate is often natural, closely related to an event that launched an epidemic, but it is sometimes engineered by marketers. Their engineering may be almost invisible to us because it happens so frequently that we get used to it, and because we find it difficult to imagine all the thought and research that went into the design of marketing campaigns. For example, consider the modern book jacket, the paper cover that publishers place on their hardcover books, and that usually includes endorsements, eye-catching fonts, photos of the author, or colorful, colorful artwork. The modern book jacket was invented during the advertising and marketing revolution of the 1920s, replacing some earlier plain paper book jackets that were there merely to prevent the book from becoming a shopworm. It is important to note that the jacket looks like the work of the publisher, not the author, so it does not make the author look pandering or boastful. Book jackets permitted an intense step-up in contagion rates for books, despite their sometimes vulgar tone. It may be hard to understand the initial public resistance to book jackets at the time of their introduction. The poet Dorothy Lawrence Mann commented in 1921 on this new phenomenon, noting that it prompted many readers to, quote, assever asseverate with indignation that far from reading or looking at or being influenced by such a blatant advertising scheme as the book jacket. They throw it away with the greatest celerity and never, never read a book until its jacket has been safely disposed of and forgotten. Despite such buyer resistance, the modern book jacket flourished because it increased contagion. Sorry, end quote at the last sentence. Flourished because it increased contagion. 
most people would never have seen the endorsements that were placed on the book jackets, and soon bookstores learned to place the latest book jackets on display in their shop windows to catch the attention of passers-by on the sidewalk. The book jacket was a brilliant marketing innovation, precisely because readers made the final decision. They could take the jacket off and throw it away, or they might leave it on and place the book on their coffee table, thus passing along its contagion to people who visited. Once it became established that even dignified authors would allow their publishers to cover their books with a glitzy dust jacket, it became a permanent fixture. In fact, publishers who want to survive in a highly competitive business where, users, where others use book jackets have no choice, for the book jacket is part of what George Akerlof and I call a fishing equilibrium. In a competitive market in which competitors manipulate customers and in which profit markets are competed away to normal levels, no one company can choose not to engage in similar manipulations. If they tried, they might be forced into bankruptcy. A fishing equilibrium with a certain ac acceptable level of dishonesty in narrative is therefore established. Fishing equilibria may not be all that bad. It is the case of the book cover. In the case of the book cover, there has developed an art of book jackets that sometimes has significant value. Another example of market-driven marketing-driven contagion is the news. The harvest of new information that news publishers hope will grab people's attention on a given day. Fools, spelled P-H-O-O-L-S, as George Akerlof and I call them, who do not think about the marketing efforts are apt to think that events exogenously give us the news by jumping out at us. But in fact, the news media are choosing the news because their financial success depends on the story's impact. A recent example occurred in the United States in 2017, during a total eclipse of the sun that found many people traveling within the country to see the eclipse in its totality. The popular news media were, were relentless in covering the story because, no doubt, they recognized its contagion as an experience shared by so many people. Some reporting took on a mystic patriotic tone, as if God had granted this extremely rare event to the United States. Though the U.S. media frequently used the phrase, once in a lifetime, they did not mention that another total eclipse of the sun would occur again in the U.S. just seven years later, in 2024. In fact, there was nothing genuinely newsworthy about the 2017 eclipse. Eclipses have been studied and understood for centuries. We also see engineered contagion in company logos on clothing and shoes, especially athletic or work clothing and shoes. The word logo, meaning a symbol representing a company or product line, dates back only to the 1930s. An example is the Lacosta clothing line, which displays its crocodile logo on its sportswear, casual clothing, and other products. Jean-René Lacoste probably the right pronunciation, the company's founder was, was a widely admired tennis star in the 1920s and early 1930s. His nickname was The Crocodile. Initial contagion for the clothing line, launched in 1933, benefited from his fame. To get today, Lacoste the tennis star is mostly forgotten. Still, the memory continues, and the logo persists. 
Those who do not reflect on the imperatives of marketing may imagine that people wear logo-branded clothing because they want to associate themselves with a prestigious clothing designer. But perhaps logo marketing works because it increases contagion. Customers may absently reach for the logo product because it is familiar and safe, and because so many others are wearing clothes with the same logo. The construction of narratives by news media, promoters, and marketers can also help lower the forgetting rate. Narratives can be associated with symbols or rituals that remind people of basic elements of the narrative. A symbol can be incorporated into building architecture, letterheads, email messages, and a million other items, and a narrative can be incorporated into regular rituals, such as traditional parades on national holidays. Experts do not fully understand the role of ritual and symbols in aiding memory, but they do understand that they are associated with success. All these examples illustrate a fundamental error that people tend to make. Fools, P-H-O-O-L-S, think that the popularity of a story or of a brand is evidence of its quality and deep importance, when in fact it rarely is. On the contrary, growing evidence in recent years has shown that many consumers detest logos and aggressive marketing. Narrative contagion is often the result of arbitrary details, such as the frequency of meetings among people many people see a logo on a shirt, and natural links to other contagious narratives, such as Lacoste's one-time fame as a tennis player. Beauty Contests and Tail Feathers how the theory of mind feeds economic narratives. Psychologists have noted that the human species is unique in the advanced development of its theory of mind. That is, humans' strong tendency to form a model of their own minds in the activities of others' minds. We are thinking about what others are thinking, about their individual thoughts. We observe their actions, their facial expressions, and their vocal intonation which we then relate to their beliefs and intentions. The contagion of specific narratives may be related to storytellers' impressions regarding what other people will think. People like to hear stories that they can retell to others, who will like the same story. And so storytellers like to tell such stories. Whew. In 1936, Keynes introduced what we now call theory of mind into economic theory with his beauty contest metaphor which he put forth to explain speculative markets, such as the stock market. Keynes thought that people in deciding which investments to make were basing their decisions on observations of what other investors were thinking, or what they were about to do with their investments, which might cause future price changes. In the case of stock market investments, investors look at what other people whom they randomly encounter are saying and emoting, and they look at patterns in stock prices that offer clues regarding what other people are doing or will soon be doing. They are usually not looking at real evidence based on the firm's technology or management style. Keynes said he had seen a newspaper contest that displayed a hundred photos, each of a pretty face. But the women in the photos were not the contestants in this unusual form of beauty contest. The readers of the newspaper will were. They were asked to mail to the newspaper their list of the six prettiest faces. The person whose list most closely matched the ten most popular faces, as revealed by all the lists together, would win the contest prize. 
Keynes pointed out that the optimal strategy is not to pick the six prettiest faces based on one's own opinion. Instead, it makes more sense to pick the six that one thinks other people might find the prettiest. But this strategy is not optimal either, if we carry the model of mind, mind to the next step of the chain. One should pick the faces that one thinks that others think the others find the prettiest. Whew. So in a rational world, one might suppose that investors, trying to gauge what other investors think about what other investors are thinking, will try to determine the right thing to think about those speculative investments. However, investors do not necessarily follow this strategy, even if all investors are rational and know that all investors are rational. In addition, we have to account for the investors' less-than-perfect rationality and the investor irrationality expected by other investors. That was a very confusing paragraph. In our 2009 book, Animal Spirits, which was in many ways an expansion and elaboration of Keene's ideas, George Akerlof and I used the beauty contest metaphor to construct a theory of the emotional foundation of business fluctuations in general. The beauty contest metaphor also applies to the contagion of narratives. When we choose to tell a story to others, we base that choice on our perceptions of how people will react to that story in our own minds. We will likely spread a story, whether it is a story about boom-time thinking or about economic despair, if we think that others will like the story enough to want to spread it further. Even if we are spreading an economic narrative for no other reason than trying to amuse ourselves, we are likely to engineer our story to spread based on the model of others' minds. The stories that go viral are essentially random, just as mutations in evolutionary biology are random. Traditional evolutionary theory suggests that the mutations may survive and spread are those few out of many that are in themselves advantageous for survival. But there is another branch to Darwin's theory, that of sexual selection, and it suggests that the winning mutations may be just as random as the original mutation. Something like this randomness may affect economic narratives going viral as well. In his 2017 book, The Evolution of Beauty, ornithologist Richard O. Prum argues that sexual selection gives rise to fluctuations in the animal kingdom that resemble speculative bubbles in economics. Perhaps the most famous example of sexual selection in biology is the male peacock, which has very heavy fe tail feathers which inhibit his activities. But these feathers are much favored by the female of the species, which facilitates mating and the reproduction of more beautiful tail feathers. Thus, the female sexual choice may create an evolutionary advantage for some useless characteristic in a process called a Fisherian runaway, after theorist R.A. Fisher. The mechanism does not even require two distinct sexes, as there is evidence for such sexual selection processes among hermaphrodite species, in which each individual has both male and female organs. In both evolutionary biology and narrative economics, some kind of ornament or display can become popular for no more reason than the fact that it randomly began to be popular. Irrational impulses inform economic narratives. Psychologist Jerome Bruner, who has stressed the importance of narratives in understanding human culture, wrote that we should not assume that human actions are driven in response to purely objective facts. 
I do not, he said, quote, I do not believe that facts ever quite stare anybody in the face. From a psychologist's point of view, that is not how facts behave, as well as we well know from our studies of perception, memory, and thinking. Our factual worlds are more cab are more like cabinetry, carefully carpentered than like a virgin forest inadvertently stumbled upon, end quote. That is, human narratives are human constructs that are a mixture of fact, emotion, human interest, and other extraneous details that form an impression on the human mind. Psychiatrists and psychologists recognize that mental illness is often an extreme form of normal behavior, or a narrow disruption of normal human mental faculties. So we can learn about the complexities of normal human narrative brain processing by studying dysnarrativia, or abnormal narrative phenomena. Neuroscientists Kay Young and Jeffrey Saver, in 2001, listed some of its varied forms. Attested narr- sorry, arrested narration, which is the ability to tell only stories learned before a brain injury. Under-narration, the telling of vacillating and impulsive stories. Denarration, which is the failure to organize a story in terms of an action-generating temporal frame and confabulation, which is the fabrication of stories that have little or no relation to reality. Each form of dysnarrativia is related to injury in a specific part of the brain. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness that can manifest as a disorder of narrative, as it often involves hearing imaginary voices delivering a fantastic and jumbled narrative. Hearing voices as a symptom of schizophrenia is correlated with volume deficits in specific brain areas. The narrative disruption found in autism spectrum disorder also is related to brain anomalies. Framing, the representativeness heuristic, and the effect heuristic. Narrative psychology also relates to the psychological concept of framing. If we can create an amusing story that will get retold, it can establish a point of view, a reference point that will influence decisions. Framing is related to the Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky representativeness heuristic in 1973, whereby people form their expectations based on some idealized story or model, judging these expectations based on the prominence of the idealized story rather than estimated probabilities. For example, we may judge the danger of an emerging economic crisis by its similarity to a remembered story of a previous crisis, rather than by any logic. George Katona, one of the founders of behavioral economics and author of the 1975 book Psychological Economics, noted an odd phenomenon. When he interviewed common people and asked them about their expectations of key economic variables, he had the feeling that they had no clear expectations and that they made up numbers on the spot to please him. But I would argue that these ordinary people were thinking about narratives that involved people and prices. If asked in an interview about their expectations for inflation, for example, they might not answer the question directly, but rather offer a dramatic story with human interest and with clear moralizing about politicians' or labor unions' activities that might be related to inflation. Psychologists have also noted an effect heuristic, whereby people who are experiencing strong emotions, such as fear, tend to extend those feelings to unrelated events. Sometimes people note 
strong emotions or fears about possibilities that they know logically are not real, suggesting that the brain has multiple systems for assessing risk. This risk-as-feelings hypothesis holds that some primitive brain system more connected to palpable emotions has its own heuristic for assessing risk. In joint work with William Goetzman and Dassault Kim, George Akerlof and I dis- examined data from a questionnaire survey of investors and high-income Americans since 1989. We found that people have exaggerated assessments of the risk of a stock market crash, and that these assessments are influenced by the news stories, especially front-page stories that they read. One intriguing finding was that a natural event such as an earthquake could influence estimations of the likelihood of a stock market crash. The respondents in our survey assigned statistically higher probabilities to a stock market crash if there had been an earthquake within 30 miles of their zip code within 30 days, triggering the effect heuristic. It seems reasonable to hypothesize that local earthquakes start local narratives with negative emotional valence. Analogous evidence has indicated that seemingly irrelevant events with strong narrative potential can affect economic or political outcomes. The World Cup competition can affect economic confidence. Shark attacks at local beaches can affect votes for local incumbents. And background music in advertisements can have a strong effect on consumers. Wine stores find buyers purchasing more expensive wines if the background music is classical versus top 40. An effect heuristic also operates in generating activity by internet trolls, people who send nasty or obscene comments over the internet. Trolling behavior appears to be contagious. An experimental group randomly suggested from the general population was primed with nasty examples of trolling. Members of that group were then much more likely to post similar comments. Going forward, the tantalizing evidence about the impact of narratives from neuroscience and related observations suggests that some entirely different explanations of the severity of major economic events. In part two of this book, we consider some organizing principles for narrative economics. A key issue in assigning the direction of causality from dispersed and ill-defined narrative constellations to actual economic activity, a topic to which we turn to in the next chapter. The chapter after that offers key foundations of narrative economics. Then, in part three, we present a list of nine important perennial narrative constellations, one, or a pair, per chapter. This marks the end of part one, and moving forward, we will start part two, the foundations of narrative economics. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.